we're going to uh, move into our reading of Scripture, and we're going to switch it up this morning. We're going to do the psalm reading first, and then we'll get into our Hebrews text. So uh, this will come up for you. I can't see mine, so I'll, I'll read mine. Um, but I want you to notice um, thematically, this will kind of prepare us in the opposite order. There's a phrase, made in the heavens, um, the splendor of his holiness, in his sanctuary, and in his courts. And these realities are in heavenly places. So we ponder this as we uh, read this portion of Scripture together from Psalm 96. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll be reading this ch- half of the chapter. I'm actually going to go up through verse 14. Um, I was going to end at verse 10, but I just couldn't do it. So we, we, need the, we need the solution. We need the answer. So we go into the next paragraph. Hebrews chapter 9. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship. Catch that? Even the first covenant. Implication, the new one does too. Even the first covenant, the old one, had regulations for worship and an earthly place for holiness. But a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies. It had the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, uh, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff, which had budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we, we cannot now speak in detail. But these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he only but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. This is symbolic. The word is parable. The word is parabolic for the present age. Now, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body that are imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, it's a little letter R. That's not, that's not talking about the one in the 1300s. 1400s. Um, But when Christ appeared, verse 11, 
as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all time into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Shall we pray? So, God, we do come. We... Indeed, we've sinned against you and one another in thought and word and deed by what we've done, by what we've left undone. And we ask now that in your mercy you would forgive what we have been and you would enable us to correct what we are and direct what we shall be. Before you, all hearts are open, all desires are known. No secrets are hid. And so cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit that we would perfectly love you and worthily magnify your name. So when Christ appeared as a high priest of these good things in the heavenly, perfect tent pitched by you alone, he offered himself without blemish, by means of his own blood, and secured our eternal redemption for a purified conscience. For this we give thanks. And so, Lord, having purified our souls, indeed, with a pure heart, may we come to this word from which we are born, a living and abiding word, the grass withers and the flower falls, but your word remains forever. So may we crave like newborn infants the pure spiritual milk that we would grow up into salvation, for we indeed have tasted that the Lord is good. Amen. Amen. All right. It's a race. I'll let them go first. Why don't you open your Bibles, if they're not there, to Hebrews chapter 9. And we'll again focus our attentions there. The theme of Hebrews is, I guess multiple, but in essence he gives us his theme core in chapter 8, didn't he? He said, the point of our message is this. Right? The point of the message is this. It's nice when one of the Bible authors actually gives us that clearly what the point is. Sometimes Paul, you know, he's meandering all around like, okay, which, wh- where, which is the main thing? The point of our message is we have such a high priest who is in the heavens. And so twice in chapter 3, chapter 8, the, the admonition is set your mind on things above. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Our vision is to be raised, elevated, to the heavenly places where Christ is. Indeed, that's where our position is as well. That's who we are in Christ. Now, we talked about conscience a little bit already. Conscience. 
Conscience is an innate, uh, we'll say God-given, God-crafted discernment, uh, sensitivity to what's right and wrong. There's an ethic, there's a moral, and it, it is innate. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, for example, it says, He has put eternity into man's heart. In the New Testament, Paul, Paul puts it this way, Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made. And so they are without excuse. Again, this anticipation of conscience. You're still saying, we haven't heard the word yet. Well, let's go to the next passage. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and following. When the Gentiles, or the nations, do not have the law, that'd be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, the Pentateuch primarily, but all of God's word. When they don't have the law, but by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. You want how can they do that? How can they actually do what God expects if they don't have those special revelation from the Word of God? Well, he goes on in verse 15. He says, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Conscience. There is a conscience in what we see happening uh, in parts of the world today. You might wonder if certain people even have one left. Well, indeed, the conscience can be seared, cut off. The conscience can be sensitized. It can be pricked. Both these aspects, both these realities are, can be a preparation or a hardening of the conscience. And how does that happen? Well, worship. Worship either pricks the con conscience or hardens the conscience. The Word of God never returns void, and so it always produces something. There's always an effect. And any time we come under the revelation of God, we will be different, either softer or harder, either more prepared or not. Can't think of the another P word right on the spot, sorry. The divine intent of the tabernacle, and that's the word tent, the tabernacle was was to work on our conscience. He did it through the, the structures of the tabernacle, and he did it through the services of the tabernacle. So the first two paragraphs that we read in chapter 9 deal with this. The first paragraph on structure and the second paragraph on service. So the structures, we come to the, the what we'll call them architecture and accoutrements. We have the building, and then we have the stuff inside the building. And we can read about this in Exodus chapter 25, Exodus chapter 26, uh, Leviticus 16, I mean, all parts of, all kinds of parts of Exodus and parts of Leviticus are fraught with instructions about how to build the tent. 
certain kinds of materials, linen and all kinds of yarn and colors even were specified. All of this goes into the construction of the tabernacle and then later in the days of Solomon, the, the temple itself. Here we have these things and these things are not original. They're patterned after what's in heaven. There's a heavenly tabernacle, a heavenly temple, the throne room of God himself. Now, he's, this uh, author of Hebrews has prepared us for this. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 2, Jesus is a minister in the holy places in the true tent, the true tent that Lord has pitched. And in later verse 5, still Hebrews 8, he says these things serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. When Moses was about to erect the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that is shown you on the mountain. So we're given, we're given a couple of uh, rooms, aren't we, within this tabernacle, an outer room and an inner room, a holy place and then a holy, holy place. And that's really how the language goes, the holy place and the holy, holy place, the most holy place. In the first section, verse 2, chapter 9, the tent was prepared, and there we have the lampstand, the table, the bread of the presence. Those loaves would be rotated out every week in fresh loaves of 12 placed there before the Lord, each loaf representing uh, one of the tribes of Israel. So that's the outer part. And then the inner part, the second uh, section, verse 3, this most holy place, has the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant. I'm sure you have an image in your mind of what that must look like. People have been presenting us artistic renditions, but we, we don't know precisely or exactly. We kind of know its dimensions. And we know it's, outlay, it's overlaid with gold, and we know that it has a cover, and we know that on top of the cover are the cherubim, and the cherubim with their with their faces down and their their wings extended, uh, always looking down, never looking up, uh, but in abeyance, in humility and worship for, uh, here's how this is, it says they are um, cherubim of glory. The glory, we could actually put a capital G on that. This is, this is, this word glory is, seems to be a synonym for God. The cherubim upon which God is seated. Now, there is no image upon the cherubim that you can discern or see or distinguish, if indeed we could see it. For this Ark of the Covenant would be now put into the Holy of Holies. We can't get there. We can't see it. We just simply hear the report of what's in there. Now, the gods of the world, which we referred to in Psalm 96, are but what? Mere idols. Other nations would have their own ark and they would have an idol put on top of it. It's the throne. They carry the throne with them into battle. And you can see the rendition of a god which is made in their own image or in the image of animals and beasts. But Israel goes marching out as the people of God and there is no god that you can see or discern. And the nations respond, Where's your God, O Israel? The psalmist 
The psalmist shares this testimony. The psalmist records those taunts by the nations. Where is your God? Did you lose Him? Did He fall off? And so you can see the the tendency, the pressure to craft something to compete with the taunts that are thrown at you. But no, the Lord is enthroned upon the cherubim. And He is in His throne room, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. There inside, inside the Ark of the Covenant are these three artifacts. We have the manna, the golden jar with manna. Uh, miraculously preserved. For you remember the Old Testament story, right? The bread would fall from heaven. Manna, and it's like coriander seed. I have no idea what that is. I, for my lack of imagination or intellect, I imagine angel food cake. Don't you? What? What? Yeah, well, it can't be devil's food. So, so that you know, but it, it wouldn't last. It wouldn't last through the day, if you if you went out and collected your portion and hold on to it till the next morning, so you can have midnight snack or you know early morning snack. You're up early to pray and you have your coffee and you want a little snack with it, and it's turned to maggots and worms. Doesn't stay, and now here we are, hundreds, thousand years later. And the manna is divinely preserved in the golden urn inside the Ark of the Covenant. And the rod of Aaron, Aaron's staff, which, oh my goodness, you have angel food cake on the one hand and almonds on the other. Almond cake. His rod budded, blossomed, and then produced the fruit of almonds. Miraculously, you remember that one, too to demonstrate that he was God's chosen priest, the order of Levi. And that rod is still there, miraculously preserved and budded. And then, and then with it are the two stone tablets of the covenant that was written on tablets of stone, not on the heart, but tablets of stone. Those ten words, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 8, uh, those ten words that were the summation of Israel's national constitution, their law code. Now, this is fantastic and wonderful. All these are at the footstool of God. This is His covenant, and these are the signs of His covenant. And indeed, in the old ancient days, um, kings would conquer a people and he would make a, a covenant with them, a peace treaty with them, and the documents of that peace treaty would be put in his footstool. Indeed, he rules all the nations, whoever, whatever king, whatever empire, whatever emperor, with them under his feet. Now, where do they get this idea? Well, they got it from God, for God at his footstool, under his throne, is the covenant he has made for his people, whom he redeemed, who he brought out of captivity. 
conquering their enemy. Now, as wonderful and fantastic as these things are, we, we wouldn't be able to get into that Holy of Holies. We certainly would never be able to lift the, the cover and look inside to see them. We simply hear from a distance that God is in there and that God has His remembrances in there. And yet when we think of these elements, we're, we're still conscience-pricked. For the manna is a remembrance of God's provision, yes, but also of the people's discontent and ungrateful spirit. They they complained about the divinely heavenly sent bread from heaven. So whenever we remember the manna, we remember our discontent. And the rod of, of Aaron, we, we're reminded of a rebellion. God had chose Aaron to be his servant, to be the priest. There were a number of folk that wanted that position as well. And in their presumption and arrogance, they tried to become the priests of God not having been appointed, having not been ordained by God. And God demonstrated the faultiness of their thinking by showing the divine blossom of Aaron's rod. And those that had a rod that didn't blossom were swallowed up by the earth and condemned for all eternity in a lack of faith and unbelief in God and in God's servant. And then the, the ten words, that's the word commandment, is actually word, debar. The ten words. Well, that's really the second set, isn't it? the copy that Moses chiseled out is the one that's there in the ark. Two tablets. Uh, it's in duplicate. You know, we, we tend to see in artist renditions of the Ten Commandments, you got four on one tablet and six on another. The four that relate directly toward God and then the six of how we relate with one another before God. Well, no, 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 no. There's two copies of the covenant document, one for the suzerain, the, the king, and one for the vassal, the servant. And God has both copies there. But these are the copies, aren't they? The originals that God had fingered on the mountain. Moses brought to the edge of the precipice and looking down upon the people of God that had already broken covenant before it even got delivered. They broke everything within those words. And Moses, in his anger, takes these and throws them down upon the people in judgment and condemnation. So we, our conscience is pricked by remembrances of past rebellion and idolatry and neglect of God and His Word and of discontent with who He is and what He's done for us. 
How will we ever get away from those remembrances? Well, that's there in the architecture and the the accoutrements of the temple. Verses 6 to 10 go on to tell us about the ritual and the regulations. These preparations have been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. They go, in fact, daily. Daily. And only the priests could get into that first section. You and I say we were people of the Old Testament, uh, Israelites, and we cared about worship and we would show up. We'd simply get to the outer court area. And then our delegate, God-appointed delegate, not democratically elected, our God-appointed delegate goes to the holy place and does those daily sacrifices and daily offerings. We, we placed our, our hand upon the head of the lamb or the goat or the cow to identify with what's going to happen to that animal. And, and then the priest takes it and goes and sacrifices it upon the altar. And the blood is spilt and, and sprinkled and so forth daily. Multiple times daily. In fact, you can read in uh, Leviticus chapter 1, Leviticus chapter 8, Leviticus chapter 9, Exodus chapter 29, you kind of get all of the sacrifices or at least a comprehensive taste of the sacrifices put together. There was a sequence to them, which we'll touch on maybe next time. There was a sequence to their order of worship. And you you remember what we read in Hebrews that if even the old covenant had a pattern for worship, the new even better pattern. And the old pattern was patterned after exactly the way they do it in heaven. That might have an implication for how we approach worship in the new covenant. Do we approach worship the way that they have structured it the way God has structured it in heavenly places. Food for thought. Now, we, we know one fellow who was able to actually get into the Holy of Holies, don't we? His name is Zechariah in Luke. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Zechariah was a priest and, and it came up. It, it was his week to go serve. Finally! I mean, you could, you could serve as a priest an entire lifetime and maybe... Your group will get called upon for one week's duty of service. Zechariah got called. Had to leave Elizabeth. Go to Jerusalem. Business trip for a week. And, and, and then, if, if you are a high priest... Once once a year, that high priest would be able to go into the next room, the Holy of Holies. And that but once a year. In, in, this, in this description, uh, the preacher to the Hebrews tells us that in the, the old system, there's a, a limited access 
You, you can't just walk in. Now, most, most given days, um, when one of us office people is here, generally the door over here is unlocked, and you can just walk on in. And if, if we don't see you, which can happen because we're way tucked on the side. And of course, this is all now on the live stream. I shouldn't tell people how they can break in. But we have cameras, you know. We can, but you can just keep on going. Come all the way right up here. You walk right up here and you could preach to whoever's out there. You can. No, not, none of that kind of thing. None of this openness in the Old Covenant. Maybe you would get to the court if there was room. Never into the holy place. Certainly. None of us would qualify for the Holy of Holies. It's repetitious. Daily. Over and over again each day. It was hard work and the priests stood the day performing these rituals and sacrifices and the regulations. It was restricted. It was repetitious. You know, and it was, it was partial. It was temporary. They had to do it again. And again. And again. And again. The repetition pricks our conscience as well, doesn't it? The remembrances come and then even the, the necessity of regulation and ritual. Here we go again. And we're reminded I can't get in there. I can't get into the presence of God. I can't draw near to God. They can, but I can't. And they, priest, high priest, still restricted. It's just not enough, verse 9 says. They cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They work on the conscience, but they cannot perfect the conscience. Verse 10 goes on to say they, they deal only with externals. Food and drink and washings and regulations for the body imposed. Ritual and regulation. Now, David will be an example for us. You notice which, which sins do the high priest go into the Holy of Holies and bring blood sacrifice to appease? Unintentional sin. Unintentional sin. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest goes into the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, and with blood, yes, for himself first of all, and then also for the unintentional sins of the rest of the people that got neglected or overlooked or forgotten about or missed the entire year. We go in and sprinkle the blood on that mercy seat under, under where the cherubim are looking. You sprinkle the blood right there for the unintentional sins. Yeah, I, I remember as a kid, uh, a boy, and I probably should do it more as a man, but I would pray every night, Lord, forgive me all my sins. Forgive me the ones I forgot. Unintentional sins. 
But what about, what about the intentional ones? They're not covered. They're called sins of the high hand. That's kind of where you get the phrase high-handed. Intentional, deliberate, overt sin. Here's what Numbers tells us. God's Word, Numbers 15, verse 30. Very blunt. God says anyone who sins defiantly with a high hand, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord. That person must be cut off from his people because he has despised the Lord's Word and broken His commands. And that person must surely be cut off. His guilt remains on him. Are you feeling a little guilt now? Is your conscience feeling a little squeamish now? Unintentional sins covered in the Day of Atonement, blanket coverage, but intentional, deliberate, high-handed sins, you're cut off from the community. David knew this. Still, he went to Bathsheba, bringing her in, committing adultery, physical intimacy outside of marriage. And not only that, has her husband murdered, staged the whole setting for him to be killed in battle. I mean, you talk about intentionality, deliberateness, a plan. So he writes in Psalm 51, David does in verse 16, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. He knew that the deliberate sins had no sacrifice, no blood sacrifice provided in the old system. What's one to do? Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. These, O God, You will not despise. Yes, as inefficient and ineffective as the old covenant system was, Salvation came the same way as it does for us. The blood of Jesus Christ was spilt for David as it was for you. David anticipating and looking ahead to the day when the Messiah would come and the perfect sacrifice would be made not only for the unintentional, but yes, even for the high-handed rebellion against God's Word. And with a repentant heart, David calls upon God for His mercy and His grace. 
if you are unable to admit fault and wrong and mistake, you have a ways to come yet to understand the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus. David, in his epitaph of the Lord Himself, He was a man after my own heart, says the Lord. Not because he did it right or perfect, but he had a broken and contrite spirit. The first tabernacle apparently refers to the whole of the system. That first area the Hebrew preacher is saying refers to this time period where you cannot get in to the Holy of Holies. You cannot draw near to God. You cannot get close. So in our architectures of today, in a what we call sanctuary, a holy place, same word, we do call this room the sanctuary, and that's okay. But understand that our architecture is nothing like that of the Old Covenant. We have no altar on which sacrifices are continually offered and repeated again and again. Oh, I know in the old days we used to talk about an altar call. But friends, in a Bible church, in a Bible-believing church, we don't have an altar. We have a table. A table. Which, if we would go to Leviticus 8, 9, Exodus 29, we would understand that that fellowship offering was the culmination of the Old Covenant worship service. And there the worshiper and the priest would enjoy eating the meal in the presence of the Lord. The fellowship offering. Our Lord Jesus Christ said at that Last Supper that He enjoyed with His disciples before His crucifixion, this is My body given for you. This is the new covenant in My blood for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is our satisfaction and He is the fulfillment of the pattern and the type. So, verses 11-14 to 14 are Christ and conscience. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, It's here. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands of this creation, He entered once for all time into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, securing an eternal redemption. Not to be repeated over and over, And not limited in its application. Eternal redemption. Not temporary till the next one. Eternal redemption. Once for all time. Jesus has done this. 
Verse 13, if the sprinkling of defiled persons with blood of goats and bulls and ashes and heifers sanctifies for the purification of the body, the flesh, how much more now will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the work of Christ. It's heavenly. The sacrifice was done in the presence of the Father, satisfying His holiness and justice. And the author of Hebrews, and further down the line in this uh, sermon, will, will I'd talk about the application of Jesus' blood on the altar in heaven. It's eternal, it's heavenly, and it's unlimited in its application, its effectiveness. And so, here's how we may enter in. Here's how we may enter into the most holy place, into that inner sanctuary, into the holy of holies, into the throne room of God. 1 John 1, verses 7 through 9. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All sin. All unrighteousness. Not only the unintentional accidents and mistakes. All sins. Even the willful, defiant, high-handed blasphemies against the Lord and His Word are covered, removed as far as the east is from the west, purified, purged by the blood of Jesus. No lamb or bull or goat can take the place of a human being eternally. But only another man. In the first Adam, that's how we got into this mess. And even as Adam was removed from the presence of God, from the community in the Garden of Eden, and not allowed to come back into the Holy of Holies. In Him, we've been kicked out of fellowship with God. And we did it to ourselves. But in the new man, the last Adam, Jesus, God in the flesh, in Him, all sin, all unrighteousness is taken away. But you must be in Christ. And Phyllis, quoting Romans, put it the best. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, 
and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the mouth one confesses and is justified, and with the heart one believes and is saved. Yes, the blood of Jesus was spilt for our sins. But He was raised to life that you too would have life. His death was your death. His life can be your life. Believe upon Him. Our Father in Heaven, as we ponder the immensity, the infinite value and effect of the blood of Jesus Christ as a complete and total sacrifice for sins, all sins and all unrighteousness. So, God, we, we are reacquainted and refreshed with this good news. And we, we come now asking for that continued work of the Holy Spirit to renew our minds and our hearts in Christ Jesus that we indeed would come before You to draw near to You with a clear conscience has been wiped clean, purified by the work of Christ. We come now. And, and if we have never done this before, we have never acknowledged this before, Lord, now would You grant this one to believe, to trust, to surrender to Christ as Lord and King and to worship at His footstool. Father, we thank You that You hear our prayers. And we thank You for hearing us through Jesus Christ, Your Son, our Lord.